Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Psychiatrist Viktor Frankl said that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. Frankl was talking about our ability to choose our mental responses to what we encounter in life. But what if we could also choose how our physiology responds to our environment so that we can perform and thrive on a higher level? My guest today explores that question in his latest book. His name is Scott Carney, and he's the author of The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. We begin our conversation discussing how Scott's investigation into the breathing methods of Wim Hof, an extreme athlete, turned him from a skeptic into an intrigued believer who wanted to learn more about our ability to exercise control over our physiology. Scott then explains his idea of the wedge as the ability to consciously put a gap between an external stimulus and the otherwise automatic physiological response it elicits. Scott and I then discuss his trip around the world to talk to people who have found ways to create wedges in their lives in order to elevate their physical and mental states. We discuss how throwing kettlebells around can be used to overcome fear and experience flow, how lying in a float tank may recalibrate PTSD, how building up tolerance to CO2 can increase your physical performance, how saunas can boost resilience, and why the power of the placebo effect is greatly underrated. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash wedge. Scott joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Scott Carney, welcome back to the show. Oh man, it's so exciting to be here. So we had you on the show a few years ago to talk about your book, What Doesn't Kill Us, and it was about your exploration, your journey with Wim Hof, the famous breath guy who can warm up his body and change his immunity system with his breath. We'll let people check that out. We'll put a link to the show on that one. You got a new book out that's sort of in the similar vein. It's called The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. So how did your experience and your work with Wim Hof lead to this book, The Wedge? Yeah. So. When I met Wim, I had been writing this book about how meditation can kill you. And and I read this article about this crazy Dutch dude in Holland. And this was in 2011 when Wim Hof was sort of an unknown. And it said that he could like sit in ice water for like crazy amounts of time and control his immune system and perform these superhuman feats of endurance through his like quirky meditation method that was like a breath protocol and like sitting in ice for a long time. And when I heard about him, I was like, this guy's crazy and he's going to get people killed. And so I went out with this commission from Playboy magazine to go essentially debunk him as this false guru character who was, you know, probably just in it for the money. And the shocking thing about about my experience with Wim is that, you know, I get to his dilapidated training center in Poland and I sit down with him and he teaches me his breathing method. And like almost instantaneously, I am getting the sort of effects out of it that he does. Like it's, you know, one of the things that happens is when you breathe, his breathing method is basically hyperventilation and then holding your breath and hyperventilating and holding your breath. And all of a sudden I was in like just an hour of doing this, I was holding my breath for three minutes at a time. And then he said, go do some pushups. And I do some pushups while holding my breath. And I do twice the number that I'd ever done before in my life at a go. And I was again, holding my breath. And so this was this eye-opening experience where I was like, well, I have to, instead of debunking this dude, write something that was about the science behind what he does. And I end up repeating the same sort of crazy cold endurance stuff that he does. Like I I run this obstacle course race in Northern England in basically just a bathing suit. I climb up Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit and I do it really, really fast. I mean, it was this sort of like total transformative experience. And And that book, What Doesn't Kill Us is, you know, a really, it's a fascinating read and, and, and it has gotten, you know, I get emails every day about how my journey and like has changed their life because, you know, people are now learning how to interact with harsh environments in a way that, that sort of changes their fundamental biology. And I think one of the, the things that we have to realize, like, it's not like I'm sucking down spiritual energy from heaven, right? And and I'm using this to like power my body, but there's actually evolutionary reasons why these things work. If you think about where our ancestors came from 300,000 years ago, you know, Homo erectus was like running around the plains of Northern Africa, exposed to crazy amounts of, of physical stress, right? Things like, you know, temperatures going up and down, wild animals, they were, had to run, they had to had intermittent starvation. And we just don't get those stresses anymore. So 
what the power of the Wim Hof method was, was like, hey, we're going to give your body some some stress and and, and and some cold stress that you really, I mean, when was the last time you took a, a ice bath, right? When was the last time you, you, you jumped into water that had little ice cubes floating on it? Probably not recently, unless you're sort of into this, this stuff. And what happens, what we find out is that when we start exposing ourselves to these extreme environments, we find a way to channel anxiety and even autoimmune illnesses and sort of reverse them. I mean, if you think about it, if, if our archaic ancestors were always combating, you know, lions, tigers, bears, and starvation and all that stuff, every one of those things required a physical response, right? It required you to respond with like adrenaline, with cortisol, with these energy boosting things. And we don't have that anymore. Now I sit at my house and I think, COVID-19 is coming to get me. I think about how I'm going to be in like quarantine and all of these things that are, that are, you know, running around the world. You know, I think of your political environment and the economy and none of these things require a physical response, right? These things require creative thinking and, and, and other stuff, but by not having a physical response, we've, we've dumped this adrenaline We've dumped this cortisol into our bloodstream and it turns against us. And the magic of what doesn't kill us and the Wim Hof method was that I learned that by exposing myself to cold water and his specific type of breathing protocols is that I was able to find a, an outlet for those responses and become a much more resilient person overall. And so after that experience, it led you down this trail of exploring other tactics that you've found people using where they're taking advantage of these, these evolutionary adaptations we have of adapting to physical stress and then just exploring this even more. And that's what this book, The Wedge, is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was up at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro with Wim, right? We just sprinted up this mountain. It took us 28 hours to get to the top. Uh, and it usually takes about five days. So we were doing this in like sort of this blistering, sort of even dangerous pace. And I realized at the top of the mountain that that I was about to have the cheesiest thought that any human had ever had, which was I had gotten to the top of this mountain because I am not on the mountain. I thought to myself, I am the mountain, right? This is like, should, this is like sort of that spiritual quote that should show up on like a yoga poster somewhere. But it was also this very profound moment because I realized that I didn't get there just by fighting my way up as like this sort of individual, but I was actually cooperating with the sensations from the environment. And through that cooperation, through that connection is why I was able to have the, this endurance. It wasn't fighting. It was getting into something like a flow state. So what do you mean by this? The book's called The Wedge. What do you mean by The Wedge? So there are two basic ideas, right? So I call, I, I, the book is called The Wedge. And think about that as like a capital T and a capital W. Uh, and then there's like a lower click case version, which is A Wedge. On a conceptual level, The Wedge with the, the capitals is, is that choice that we have to intercede between stimulus and response in the, bo in the body. It's, a, it's like a big picture idea is that when you feel something coming in through your sensory pathways, you, your body can react without you thinking, or you can be like, I'm going to take some time and put some space in between that stimulus and response. So it's like, a, it's like this big picture idea and it applies to like everything. A wedge the, the lowercase version is when I'm talking about specific techniques, like little things you can do to, to provide yourself that space. And let's just take the case of like a, an ice bath. In, in cold exposure, the ice bath is a wedge, right? It's that technique to, to get in there. But the wedge, the capital wedge, is that mental trick we use for that when we go into the ice bath, that we are suppressing our urge to clench up and shiver. And you're trying to create space so that as that tension comes up in you, you will it to relax. And that's what the wedge is in that moment. All right. So the wedge is you're, it's basically you're, you are taking what most people think are just automatic, reflexive, physiological responses and, and not making them automatic and reflexive and, and having a bit of control over that. Yeah. Exactly. Like that is like the heart of it. And, and, you know, you probably should have written the subtitle to my book because that was beautiful. All right. So to understand what allows us to do this, like what allows you to not clinch up 
whenever you submerge yourself in cold or what allows you not to have that reflexive fear response, which we'll talk about. We need to understand some, some neurology, some psychology, what goes on when we experience things. And you talk about, we're able to, you're able to insert a wedge into your existence or to your experience because there are three parts of an experience. There's stress, sensation, and mindset. So walk us through this concept and how those things interact with one another. All right. So there's three basic ways that your body or that your mind experiences the world. It, like to get information from that sort of brain tissue inside your skull from the outside, the, the information though, has to first travel from your sensory organs through the neural pathways in your body and then into your brain where the experience actually happens. And stress, sensation, or mindset are the three places where you can insert a wedge. But what this, by this, what I mean is stress. So you get to choose the type of stress that you have. If you never have gone into, say, ice water, you've never experienced that stress. So you've sort of factored that out of your life. But you're always experiencing something because your nerves are always transferring information into your body. Sensation is the actual thing after that stress you know, occurs, let's say ice water, right? You jump into the ice water and between your fingertips that are first experiencing it and your brain, we have all these neural pathways that happen. And there's a certain flavor, I guess you could say, that your, your neural pathways imbue to any sort of experience. And if you're able to alter what information that sensation is going to transfer to your brain, you have the ability to change um, your experience of that thing. And usually this is like a chemical intervention or like a, like a certain breathwork protocol that changes the, the actual transmission rate of, uh, of information in your nerves. And then there's the third place where you can sort of wedge, which is the mindset you have. For instance, if you jump into ice water and you're thinking to yourself, this is the worst experience I'm ever going to have in my entire life, it's going to be the worst experience you've ever had in your entire life. If you go into it and say, I am so excited to be here, you have a lot better shot of feeling great about that experience. And so that's why I'm talking about three different places where can you, you can use this lowercase wedge. And I want to dig down a little bit here because there's a really fundamental concept in this book that's going to help explain everything that we're going to talk about later in this interview, which is what I call neural symbols. And it's how your brain encodes information about the world. And, you know, we have those three places, right? Stress, sensation in your nerves, and mindset. Well, how does your brain initially, the very first time it senses something, how does it get that information? Well, go from your peripheral nerves. And again, let's use the example of ice water. You jump in and what happens is your nerves send a really loud signal through your arms and into your spinal column and up into the very base of your brain, which is where consciousness starts. When it's there, it goes into the limbic system. And I think of the limbic system as something of a library. You know, think about this. There's a library and there's lots of books on it. And, and this librarian gets this signal and looks at this signal and says, huh, I've never felt ice water before. Let's say you're a child or, or you're, this is your first time in any sort of sensation. This, this signal comes in and, and, and she looks at it and says, well, have I felt this signal before? She looks at all of her books and, and there's, she's never felt anything like this before. So she says, huh, I don't know what to make of this. So she kicks the, that sensation up to another part of the brain called the paralimbic system. It's only about a centimeter away. And here, there is essentially a book binder who gets this new signal. is like, hmm, what is this signal? Looks at it and says, well, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just data. So I will apply your current emotional state. So whatever you're feeling emotionally at that moment, he binds it and connects it so that uh, it can't be disjoined and kicks it back down to the librarian who looks at it and says, great, ice water means unmitigated terror and horror because that's what you're feeling <laughs> when you get into the ice water. And files that book away. Now, here's the very, very important thing about neural symbols is to remember, which is the next time you jump into ice water, it, it comes in a straight data and the librarian realizes she's seen this book before and she pulls off the old neural symbol off the shelf and you re-experience 
the old emotional state. You re-experience that unmitigated terror and she never kicks it back up to the Paralympic system. It just goes on and that's what forms your experience. Now, neural symbols are the bits and bites of all human experience. Since your brain is locked away in your skull, the only way it's ever gotten information at any time in its entire history is through your sensory pathways. And every one of those sensory pathways goes through the limbic library into the, the, the guy who makes the books and, and, and kicks it back down. And that forms all lower cognition and higher cognition. Like I couldn't be talking to you right now on this podcast without using billions of neural symbols. I could, I, you just cannot think without them. So emotion, especially past emotion is locked into your brain. So, yeah. So it sounds like emotions and since like every sensation we have is tied up with an emotion. Yes. Everything, every, every, you know, ennui and, and, and hate and love and the texture of light and, and you waking up in the morning under your covers, every one of those sensations is 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 bonded to an emotion and, and we experience the world through an emotional lens and this idea of, of symbols can ex- help explain anxiety or fears and you actually went to a guy this is what he studies is phobias and extreme anxiety basically there's a, an encoding problem there like they they've encoded just a regular everyday experience with a super negative emotion totally like so i went to stanford university where i met andrew huberman who's this really amazing neuroscientist there who really wants to understand the basis of what fear is. And, you know, if you think about it, fear isn't about being in the moment. Like, you know, if you think about that lion who's going to be chasing us throughout this entire podcast, right? This lion's like, you know, a hundred feet away or half a mile away. And you look at that lion and it's looking at you and fear is the anticipation of that lion charging you and eating you. And you sort of like race your mind forward to the lion eating you, but it's not eating you. It's just like that prediction of the future. Now, if we go back to neural symbols, sometimes this sort of propensity to anticipate really, really bad events is actually hardwired into your brain. And people who get phobias, for instance, may have had an experience that somehow wired a really, really intense neural symbol for, say, lions on the savannah or stakes or whatever it is that scares you. And merely the appearance of a lion in the distance or appearance of that stimulus at a distance is enough to trigger that old neural symbol and make you super anxious right away. And what so what Huberman does is he throws you into this, a virtual reality simulator where he has been hanging out. He wanted like a standard stimulus to study the fear response. And when you have fear, you have all these automatic reactions, right? You, you release adrenaline, you release cortisol, your eyes open up or shut closed. And so he puts you these VR goggles on you that are measuring the, the, the dilation and contraction of your, of your irises and your eye movements to see how you respond to the stimulus. So he put me into this virtual shark dive where I'm, uh, I'm swimming with these great whites in order to trigger fear. And I figured that if I was in the stimulus of the fear, I could try to insert a wedge to create space between that stimulus of the shark and then my response, which I would be able to choose a response. So I thought this would be a great way to train my fear response. But wah, wah, I get into the <laughs> the shark dive. And it turns out I'm not afraid of uh, virtual sharks, even if they're really realistically depicted. So in a way, what the, his, his setup is really good for is people who have like predisposed to anxiety, but I actually didn't find a way to insert my own wedge in his protocols. Well, how would you insert a wedge with that? Would it just be a matter of, you know, exposure therapy where you're just exposed to it over and over again, then you are rewiring a new emotion to that sensation? Yeah, that's that. I mean, so that's like the 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 trick in general is like if you want to if you wanted to create a fear, for instance, you would you would bond an event or a stress to a really really bad emotional response. And if if the event was really really loud, you like so let's say you're a soldier in Afghanistan, you have a roadside bomb go off after you. That that's going to wire all of the previous sensations you were having before that roadside bomb into this like trauma and create this horrible anxiety of even generalized things that might that are similar like a like a, a garbage truck or something similar like that but alternately you can 
try to minimize those fear responses by trying to create new associations with certain sounds and with certain stimuli to sort of like drown out and file new neural symbols that are sort of similar with different emotional valiances to them. So this experience here led you to another guy, I think it was in the, it was in the, San, it was in the San Francisco area, who was throwing kettlebells around, like tossing them around, dancing at the same time. And you found this, I mean, at first off, you're like, this is weird. But then you also discovered like this was a, a wedge you could do to use to basically affect, you know, hack what we what people call flow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing was, is that I was actually walking out of Andrew Huberman's lab being sort of like bummed out that I wasn't having a great fear experience there when I got this text from a friend of mine, which said, dude, Scott, you got to go throw kettlebells with my friend, Michael Castro Giovanni. He has a way to make you experience flow instantaneously with kettlebells. And when I saw this text, and of course, I'm using like sort of a, a voice with it. I thought like, that sounds so lame because I'm, I'm not a gym guy. Like I don't, kettlebells to me just sound like just weird, I guess. And, but I was in the mood to like, you know, try something. And I thought the word flow sounded sort of cool. So I met Michael up on this hill in San Francisco. I drove up from Palo Alto to meet him. And, you know, Michael is this just gorilla of a dude. Like if you, if you see him, like he's sort of like hunched over these giant shoulders and these biceps that are as big as my legs, you know, like just a real big guy. Uh, and and picture this, you're standing, I'm standing right across from him and he's got this freaking iron ball in his hand and he's going to throw it at me. And he says, I want you to catch it. And it, in just about any instance where two men are facing off against each other and they're going to throw essentially a weapon at each other, this is an adversarial position. And honestly, it's scary. Like, Probably everyone who just heard that there's going to be, you're going to be throwing kettlebells, like, well, you're going to land, that's going to land on your foot, and that's really bad. Um, but what is amazing is that he, he throws it, and you're supposed to do this like, like ritual in the beginning where you're looking at each other's eyes as he swings the bell, and then you look at the bell, and as you transfer your attention to the bell, he releases it, and then you catch it. And when you do this, the really fascinating thing is that instead of being adversaries, you realize that you have to cooperate in order to bother to, to, to get anything out of this thing. You're going to hurt each other. So the real presence of the danger in the kettlebell is what forces both people to, to coordinate their movements. And, and instead of being sort of like a, like a bro-y workout on this mountain, we are suddenly dancing and our movements are totally coordinated because of the danger of throwing this. And, and so I found my wedge instead of the sharks, which were virtual and didn't do anything to me, just the thought of possibly breaking my foot becomes this thing where I can move so easily. And, and, and what kettlebell throwing is about at its heart is about connection and developing trust with another person. And I did it almost instantaneously with this guy named Michael, just by sort of giving into this experience and, and, and flowing with it. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, that section really stood out to me because, you know, I've read the books about flow and how you can access flow, but in my experience, the, when I when I read that, I started thinking all the experience where I where I can remember experiencing that flow state, there was always that element of danger. Like there's some sort of risk involved. I mean, I, it's hard to get flow when you're when I'm riding or doing some sort of you know pedestrian sedentary thing, but whenever I'm doing something, whether it's like working construction where you're you're using tools that are you know, could kill you or maim you, it's I, I can it's more it's easier to get in that flow state when you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, like, isn't that so fascinating that in order to connect to that thing, because it, because flow feels amazing, right? Flow feels like everything's just working out so perfectly, but in order to get to that, there have to be stakes, right? You have to, you have to have actually something to push up against, even if it's something as minor as possibly getting your foot slammed with a kettlebell and breaking your foot. I guess, I guess that's not that minor, is it? But but it's it's more minor than a great white shark. And but you need something to push against or else you cannot get there. Uh, how have you have you been able to like you know, transfer this idea to other aspects of your life of like adding an element of danger to enter the flow state with your other activities you do? 
That's a really, really good question. Ultimately, what usually happens, sort of the opposite, is where you start to engage in things that are dangerous or stressful, as I, what I talk about in, in, in the wedge, and you find that you can actually function in more areas than you could before. You find that you can gain mastery of things that are dangerous. And it's just like, you know, we just talked about construction. You're, you're hanging with these dangerous tools. And the first time you use a chainsaw or a, a you know, any sort of thing that could cut your hand off, it's, re- it's, it's terrifying, right? But then you get over it because you realize how the tool works and how it uses and you become a more capable and overall competent person. And that's really what I see more. I guess though, once you start doing some dangerous stuff, you realize that you can gain competence in other areas too. So there is that element. It's like it's like you can find that you can take on more difficult challenges because you're not going to be overruled by your anxiety. So as you discovered in your book, What Doesn't Kill Us, breath is a very powerful tool to access the wedge or to put a wedge. So we talked about Wim Hof and his method, but then you found a guy who who had used Wim Hof's method with his athletes, trains runners, but then you discovered if you follow that method exactly, it actually gives you like the results you're not looking for. So he, he modified it a bit. So talk about how this guy used breath to insert a wedge with his athletes. Yeah, so this is Brian McKenzie. And, and I wrote about it. He has a whole chapter in What Doesn't Kill Us where he was using the Wim Hof method. Now, remember how I said I did Wim's hyperventilation technique where you're breathing really, really fast and holding your breath. And then you do a bunch of push-ups. And I, I blew out my push-up record. That's sort of a well-known anaerobic boost that happens when you're doing the Wim Hof method. And what McKenzie was thinking, because he trains athletes, he trains Olympians. He was like, well, I, what if I could use that on the field? Like if you get this boost, if I have these hyperventilating athletes, maybe I'm going to see like, and I, and I use their hyperventilation and training, maybe I'm going to see a huge boost in their athletic performance um, in general. Well, at that point, he was in what doesn't kill us. He was sort of experimenting with this idea, and I and I wrote to, I, in that book. I was like, "Isn't this great? Aren't we going to see see these great results in a few years?" Well, fast forward a few years, and I meet Mackenzie again. He's like, "Yeah, that didn't really work out." It turns out that that fast breathing, where you blow off all this carbon dioxide, gives you a really really strong boost in a moment, but it doesn't translate to training benefits. So if you were going to sprint. If you hyperventilate in your sprint, you're actually sprint really much better than you do normally. But if you're trying to look for long lasting changes, it doesn't work. And, and so what McKenzie did is flipped the script. Instead of hyperventilating, he tries to make, get people to build up the CO2 in their lungs. Now, when you breathe air, air comes in as mostly oxygen, that oxygen goes around your body and it releases as carbon dioxide or CO2. And CO2 is the waste product of respiration. And and for whatever weird biological reason our body cannot detect oxygen, it only detects the 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 poisonous byproduct of respiration which is CO2. And in the Wim Hof method when you blow off all your CO2, you're able to hold your breath for a really long period of time because you have to rebuild back that level. And what McKenzie says is this is like blowing off the roof of your athletic training. But what he wants to do instead is instead of blowing off the roof, he wants to build up your tolerance to CO2 so that you can breathe really slowly instead of really deeply and fast so that you build up more CO2. And over time, you expose yourself to enough CO2 that you're able to function in a high CO2 environment. And this is what he calls blowing off the floor. And what is remarkable about this is that over time, and and the way he does it is you can use like oxygen restriction. The other thing he says is just so useful and so hard is to do a workout, but instead of breathing through your mouth, like we all do all the time, breathe just through your nose and it kicks your ass. But at the end of it, you start learning that you're training your body to develop really high CO2 so that when you do switch to mouth breathing, you are like a rocket. And, and this is where he has seen this huge performance boost in his athletes. It also has this really interesting anxiety connection is that with CO2, as you build up more CO2 in your body, you feel more panicked and anxious. And actually you'll see cognitive behavioral therapists 
give people masks that dose them with like 30% CO2, which is a high, do a high dosage of CO2. And when you do that, you'll have a panic attack. You'll start breathing really heavily. You'll feel claustrophobic. It'll feel horrible. And the CBT therapists use this to give you a, a panic attack in a clinical setting where you are safe so that you get used to the sensations and you can be then less anxious of panic attacks in the future. Well, the amazing thing here is that as you build CO2 tolerance, your anxiety levels drop and go, and I mean, they don't go away entirely, but you have much more control over your sensations of anxiety. And that's the other thing that Brian McKenzie found that was so amazing. And he has this protocol that he calls apnea breathing. And like, this is what deep sea divers, like those guys who are crazy and they yep. use no oxygen, <laughs> they actually do this too. Like they have to develop their tolerance to CO2 and they do this breathing method where they just build up CO2 progressively in their system. So their body gets used to having that much CO2 in it. Totally. And like when, when I was meeting Brian, he actually gave me, he said, download this app. It's called like apnea trainer, which is the free divers app to build up CO2 tolerance. I mean, they are, they are basically the same exact technique. And it's interesting that, that CO2 buildup is connected to anxiety. Cause like whenever you have like, you know, tactical guys, like army guys, police officers, like one of the things they talk about whenever you are in that stressful situations is to breathe. And that's probably just to calm you down, to get that CO2 out of your, or yeah, I mean, is, is it getting the CO2 out of your system or is, are you, what are you doing when you're breathing that causes you to have less like anxiety or stress? Oh man, you are doing like breathing does a lot. Um, and to say it's just one thing would be really, really, um, um, mean to breathing. But one of the things you do, like if you're about, like, let's say you're in a stressful situation, you're a cop with a gun facing down a potentially dangerous, but you're not totally sure how dangerous criminal, right? That, that, that deep breath, taking a deep breath in will fill your lungs with oxygen. And then more importantly, when you exhale, you exhale the CO2 which gives you at least a little bit more space, a little bit more of <clears throat> a wedge <laughs> um, into taking control and separating that stimulus from response. But breathing is one of these things that just all, it's it, like, it's this automatic process in your body. Like you're just breathing right now and you're not thinking about it. And then you think about it and then you can do, you can hold your breath, you can exhale, you can do anything. And it's this really interesting liminal point between your autonomic physical processes and where your consciousness comes in. And you find that if you can alter your breathing in multiple ways, breathing fast, breathing slow, holding your breath, and using your breath with your movement and lots of things like that, you find that you're able to control the automatic things in your body. So you could, you could slow your adrenal release or you could ramp up your adrenal release depending on the situation. All right. So another tool, another wedge tool that you found that you can access the wedge are float tanks. Now, these have gotten a lot of press, Joe Rogan, Navy SEALs, like they've made them popular. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this until you emailed me, that, but like some of the best research about float tanks is happening here in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So tell us about that. How does that, how can float tanks insert a wedge into our experience? Tulsa, there's the Laureate Institute for Brain Research, where this guy named Justin Feinstein is the only neuroscientist in America who is really doing clinical studies on flotation. And what he's doing is he's taking uh, people with PTSD, major depression and anxiety, and putting them into float tanks as a treatment protocol. The thing that I've been studying so far in this conversation is like, what do you do in the, in the presence of a really, really intense stress? And then how can you control yourself in the stress? But the float tank is the opposite of that, right? The float tank is, let's say we take out all of the external world. We, we, we remove that external sensory stimulus of those three parts that I was talking about earlier. What happens now? What is just your body? What, what Justin Feinstein uh, at, the, at the Lord Institute discovered is that our sensations of our body also carry with them all sorts of neural symbols that reinforce every sensation that we that we have and what is so amazing about flotation tanks is that they can actually really really help with anxiety and depression to explain this let's go back to that proverbial soldier 
right? Who's in Afghanistan who just had this, like, he was walking down the street. He, there was a certain quality of sunlight on him. There were some children playing, a tea cellar, some flowers around him. And then boom, all of a sudden there's an explosion and it's really traumatic and horrible. And maybe some people die and it wires that entire event into his head as in the language of neural symbols. So that that when he's on the ground, his heart is pounding. He's feeling that like full body sensation of adrenaline, cortisol, and also the damage on his body. And it all gets wired up and connected. When he comes back home, you know, this apocryphal soldier gets PTSD when he's walking around and that certain quality of light happens or he smells flowers or there's, a, you know, the a children's voices in some way. And these can actually all trigger post-traumatic um, stress. And even more Interestingly, the first time a lot of people really, really become aware of their heartbeat and their blood pressure is in a very traumatic event because that stuff goes haywire because you've dumped all this adrenaline into your body. And that wires neural symbols too. What happens with Feinstein is he says that when you put your, yourself into a flotation tank, you've drowned out all of the external symbols so that you become aware of your body again. And when you're aware of your body, you're, you, you, it's so quiet that you can hear your heartbeat and you, you're able to form a new neural symbol with your heartbeat so that when you, when you experience it again, even sub-perceptually, because we're always sub-perceptually experiencing our heartbeat, you don't have that constant reinforcement and you're able to break those loops that, ha that, that cause PTSD. Now, his study that he did was amazing because he found that I think he's tested about 25 people in float tanks. He made them, he had them float for an hour, sensing their heartbeat. And he did questionnaires before and after to sort of sense their protocols. And then a month after, and he found that 100% of people who floated for just one hour had significant decreases in, in, in their anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms that lasted and persisted for over a month. That's crazy. And for for those who aren't familiar, like what floating is, it's like you're you're basically in this warm bath bathtub. It's about the same temperature as your body. Uh, it's filled with salt, so you float. It's completely dark usually, and there's no sound. So it feels like you're you're literally floating on air sometimes. Yeah, it's it it is as close as you can get to isolating your body and your mind from the rest of the world as is possible right now. Did you have a good experience floating? I, I generally did. So I floated quite a few times, maybe about 10 or 15 times in total. And, and I would say all but one of them was a great experience. But there was this one experience that was pretty bad. And I, I can tell you about it, where my wife and I, and my wife is like actually the hero of this book. It's not really me. She has accompanied me on almost all of these things that I get up to. And I say, hey, why don't we go... And, and float at this float center that's right near my house. And as we were getting there to the float center, we got in this like argument, just like a, a marital argument that you've maybe had before uh, that like happened up until we got to the door of the float center. And it wasn't a very important argument. But then we get into the, the, the float tank and almost immediately after having that sort of negative experience, we jumped into the float tank and all we did in this sort of like echo chamber was roll on that horrible thought. And it rolled and rolled in our mind. So that it was like this mean experience. And we got out, our fight erupted again. And we were sort of grumpy with each other for like a week afterwards. And I think this is a very, very important thing to note is that all of these things with the wedge, your intentions and your mindset as you get in there is super important to the results that you're going to get as you come out. So we brought our argument into the float and then we just um, amplified it. I was telling you before the show, I floated, I floated twice. Both times I just had to pee really bad while I was floating. That's all I thought about. <laughs> so it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. Did you? No, well, no, Did see, I didn't want to see, I, it stressed me out because I didn't want to be the guy that peed in the float tank. Cause you know, if someone else is going to use it afterwards, you can't do that. So I'm glad it was out of altruism that you're thinking, like, think about the next man and you weren't thinking about yourself. I, don't, I wouldn't your mind that. Baby. It's my, okay, whatever. It's like peeing in the pool. <laughs> It's just me, <laughs> oh, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to be that guy. All right. So you have a pool. And I, <laughs> I, I do. And I, I, oh, I, I, I don't pee in the pool. I mean, right. <laughs> remind you not to come to my house and pee. All right. Uh, or swim. So, uh, another 
wedge tool you discovered were saunas. So how can exposing ourselves to heat help us access the wedge? Right. So heat is the opposite of the cold, obviously. Um, when we think talk about the cold, you're, you're controlling your sympathetic responses, which is <clears throat> basically you jump in the cold and then you are, it's like your fight or flight just comes on immediately. You release adrenaline, you release cortisol. And what you're doing, the technique in cold water, is to relax in that cold water. And then you, are, are, you start to learn the tools and the sensations to focus on to control your stress responses. The heat is the opposite. It's the parasympathetic responses where your natural reaction is to, to calm down and cool, and cool yourself off. And you're, what we're doing in, in the heat is trying to train. Well, we can actually train two things. One, you could get into the heat and then like have a really intense workout. This is the, the idea between hot yoga, for instance, and that is super beneficial. But what we're doing in a sauna is we're trying to relax and feel those sensations and control ourselves against the sensation of claustrophobia because the 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 sign of your overheating is this sense of the world closing in and it's it's this it's this feeling that you have to just go run and get out of there. And so I flew to Latvia to a traditional sauna called a Pirts with my wife. And we did a five-hour sauna with two shamans. Uh, they call them Pirtniks. But it's basically, think about these people as like druids. They show up and they are in green felt hats. There is like all of these ritual brews and teas that they're giving us. And they, they put us in this sauna for five hours. And it's about 180 to 220 degrees in that sauna at various points. And what they're doing and what a shaman this type of shaman really is, is somebody who can sense your sensations. And I don't mean that in some sort of like telepathic way. I mean like a sort of a more mechanical way. You're, we're lying on these benches, we're nude, and, and they're, they're standing over us. And as we're getting to the point where we can't take it anymore, where we're like, you know, getting that, that really hard place they take a sprig of cold water and douse it on our feet and, and give us and keep us just below the red line. And in this way, we're able to spend five hours in this crazy hot sauna. And they're, you know, they're, they're sensing us by like literally putting their hand on our, on various parts of our body, like our feet or our head or whatever. And if we feel hot to their touch, they know that, that we must be having a more intense experience than, than they're having. So they're able to sort of use these, their sensations to sense our sensations. It was fascinating. But the weirdest thing that happened in the sauna was as we're lying on these benches, they also have this ritual where they feed us weird things that are oddly familiar. Like at the beginning of the ritual, we eat bread that has like pine needles into it. And we drink tea that has wormwood into it. And these are like, familiar sense, but they're sort of in weird contexts. Contexts, And then we go into the sauna and we're in this really stressful area and we experience those things again. They start hitting us with pine needles and rubbing wormwood on our skin. And we're in this like super stressful place. And as they do that, for some reason, my brain starts connecting senses like a synesthet, like I have synesthesia, which, and what that means is that I start hearing pressure on my skin. I start smelling sounds and, and, and tasting noise. It is a, this totally bizarre experience because they're, they're using the, the same stimulus, which was the bread or whatever, in a totally new context. And my brain gets super confused and at the end of this whole ritual, I feel so refreshed, so renewed. It's like it's like you're 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 tasting things new again for the same time, but that taste is like the world around you. It was amazing. So, I mean, what do you think the benefit of that is? Except, you know, besides experiencing weird taste or whatever. <laughs> I mean, the the saunas are like really traditional medicine. Like they are a a Every circumpolar um, indigenous group around the world uses sweat lodges, they use saunas, they use these things as ways of forming community, as forming bonds with each other. They use it to fight depression. And there was this really interesting guy that I met named Charles Raison, who shows that by exposing people to heat therapy, 
they actually severely reduce anxiety symptoms. They severely reduce major depression. And I have noticed this over and over again. When I, because like literally right after I went back from Latvia, I bought a sauna and now I sauna all the time. And it is, it is more effective clinically in Charles Rizan's research than taking a uh, SSRI, uh, taking like Prozac or Valium or any of these, I guess Valium's a benzo. But it's better than those these antidepressants at relieving depression. It's amazing. Yeah, we had Charles on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was saying that what the sauna does, it increases. So, like his interesting theory about depression is that it's more. It's also an inflammatory condition. It's not right. not neurochemical. Your body is basically inflamed, and your mind is inflamed. And what yeah. the sauna does is it helps. Re, it increases inflammation, and in the process of doing that you decrease systematic inflammation. And then you have this whole chapter about that, about inflammation and macrophages and and how a lot of things that we do for treatment, medical treatment, is often be, can be attributed to placebo. And this was an interesting chapter. Can you walk us through this? Sure. So the placebo effect is like the most derided thing in medicine, right? Like how often have you heard someone takes does a, any sort of alternative medicine thing and they and they say oh well, that's just the placebo effect that made them better and the question is is if if there, someone is getting better is that not medicine and and one of the things i look at and i look at many things in this chapter but is if you see a standard clinical trial of just about any drug they do they test the chemical against a group of people who are not taking the chemical but they're getting sort of like a treatment. And they say that if the chemical performs better than the, than the placebo, then the chemical must be good. And then, and then that is a medicine and that gets approved by the FDA. But if you actually start looking at these trials, many medicines and not all, there are certain classes of medicines such as antibiotics where the placebo is, is radically not useful compared to the an active drug, but in many, many drug trials, you'll have a, approved drugs that are like one or 2% better than the placebo, where a drug is like 30% effective, but the placebo is like 28% effective. And, you know, one of these that I, I like to write about a lot because I think it's absurd is Rogaine, the hair club for men thing that grows hair on your head is like 28% effective if you take this topical solution and put it on your head. But if you just put any solution and think it should get good vibes, that will also regrow hair at like a 25 or 21% rate. So one of the questions is like, why are we just looking at medicine from this sort of very myopic perspective of a chemical intervention when that placebo effect is actually incredibly powerful and we can manipulate it in various ways. Uh, And so in this chapter, I'm looking at a number of ways to sort of communicate with various parts of your body. And again, I don't mean telepathically, I mean like physically, to try to make them better and try to make them more effective. And honestly, a lot of it comes through emotions. Like I was talking to this cardiologist the other day who said um, he will always try to use the placebo effect when he's healing patients and he, he, he does it very consciously. So let's think about a person who's about to go through open heart surgery. He will show them a picture of the clogged thing that he's about to fix with, with plaque around the walls. And he say, look, this is how bad your, your heart is or your atria or, or whatever. And he shows them the scan and says, I'm going to clean all of that out. And then And then he goes through the surgery and shows them an after photo and say, look, I cleaned all that out. Think of how much more blood we're pumping through your system. Now, showing the picture is not like a physical intervention, but he sees really, really significant improvements in in the people he showed the picture to before and after versus the people who didn't get the before and after photo. It wasn't just the physical thing that he did in heart, which was probably essential, but it was also that all the things that go into thinking about getting yourself better. Well, they've done that with surgeries too. They found that like, uh, you know, back surgery to alleviate back pain or even um, surgery on your shoulder. They found that if you could just like cut the person open and then stitch them back up and said, yeah, we fixed your back. They're like, they report their back feels better. So many people. And like, honestly, you see this again and again and again in medicine where, you know, if you think about it and, and I'm not against the medical industry, people can sort of like 
oftentimes listen to me and think that I'm like, screw Western medicine. And that is not my position whatsoever. But there is a lot of money to creating drugs that you can sell over and over again to treat chronic conditions. And there is not a lot of money in giving people placebos. And we've created sort of evidence paradigms around chemicals and things that we can sell that you know cost a billion dollars to get a drug onto the market at the end of the day. There's no clinical setting where you can sell someone ice water or or positive juju that would generate a similar amount of vibes. And I think it's very, very important not to throw away the benefits of Western medicine, not to throw away antibiotics, not to, to, to ignore clinical interventions that work, but also accentuate what is available out there in the healing through sensation, through all of the things that I'm looking at at the wedge. A lot of these things work probably along the same pathways as placebos. And that shouldn't mean that they're bad. It means it's another way to access the healing power of your body. It's another tool. Well, Scott, there's a lot more we can talk about. You have all, you, you delve into psychedelics and you went on two psychedelic journeys and we'll let people check that out. But where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So you can get a free chapter of The Wedge right now at my website, scottcarney.com. And just go there and you subscribe to the mailing list and then you can read the first chapter. But it'll also be like everywhere. It'll be on Audible. If you like the sounds of my voice, you can. I will read it to you. Ebooks, absolutely everywhere. I'm also on all the social media platforms. But I would love you to go to my website and read the chapter first. So sign up for the mailing list and, uh, and let's get going. Well, Scott Carney, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. My guest today was Scott Carney. He's the author of the book, The Wedge. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, scottcarney.com. Also check out our show notes at awim.is slash wedge, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.